shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much love drives a man insane. You broke my will, but what a thrill. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. Welcome to the 50th episode of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Yes, folks, we've completed a half century of these things. Bloody a hell. year of our rambling <laughs> nonsense and ranting opinions. I'm here with my old partner in crime, Mark Pringle. Hello, Bonnie. And RBP's very own hip young gunslinger, Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Bonnie. <laughs> to celebrate this august occasion. And boy, do we have a show for you today. We sure do. To help celebrate this splendid half century, <laughs> Jasper's going to tell you all about a very exciting giveaway that we're offering this week. Yeah, it's actually running for a month from now to celebrate our 50th podcast. We're going to be giving away over 50 months worth of full access to all of Rock's Back Pages. That is 40,000 text articles, all the audio interviews. Plus, we're giving away five copies of Major Dudes, our Steely Dan reader, because, you know, we're major dudes. But <laughs> speak for yourself, Or at least minor dudes. <laughs> minor dudes. Just dudes. dudes. Definitely we're, we're not young dudes. No. Apart from one of us. Well, yeah, quite. Yes. <laughs> But so that's 15 lucky winners will walk away with either a book or a subscription. And you can enter that at rocksbackpages.com forward slash giveaway. The links will be in the description everywhere. So check that out. Do enter. There are lots of ways to enter. You can review it. You can subscribe to it and all that stuff. So we'd love to have you enter and we'd love to have you win a subscription. So Great. Thanks, Jasper. Terrific. We're going to start on a slightly more sombre note, actually, despite the air of celebration in the RBP cupboard, yes. dubbed by David Hepworth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we lost this week the writer Nick Toshes. The um, very great writer Nick Toshes. The very great Nick Toshes, whose work we've featured in the RBP library for a number of years. One of our sort of superstar names in many ways. Um, Nick uh, passed away just a few days short of yeah. his 70th birthday? Three, three days before his 70th birthday. Yeah, so. and I mean, we have three pieces that we're featuring to try and give a sense of what an extraordinary writer Toshis was. One of them is from Fusion. The first magazine Nick ever wrote for was Fusion in 1969. Mm-hmm. This is a Fusion piece from 71 about Captain Beefheart, and it is Nick in kind of full gonzoid sort of mode <laughs> ah, he probably he's a great stylist yeah it's sort of hilarious writing he later very much would disavowed that sort of gonzo label but he was one of those writers who came through in the late 60s who wrote in this extraordinary free form yeah. free associative I speed mean, freak style i'd say it's sort of out of the new journalism via the likes of hunter s thompson yes There's a lot mm-hmm. of hunter s thompson in his early writing and then he sort of, well, you go ahead yeah. with this Well, bit. so, so th- this is just a, a blast of Tosh's in, in his early prime, March 71 fusion. A long piece on Captain Beefheart, really just trying to convey what's so great about Don Van Vliet. He isn't caught up in the ego rush muck of contriving nifty time signatures. His music comes direct, untampered, uncut, uncured and safe as milk. And when his atemporal, ametrical alpha wave poesies shatter the primordial (laughs) circadian rhythms of the collective 1970 Judeo-honk emotional neural brain midden, the reactive feeling (laughs) is initially one of discomfort. His music carries 
embrace the same horrific intimidation to defense-oriented conditioning that a three-year-old kid playing with his shit in a toilet bowl does. <laughs> <laughs> boom! Deep breath in. Ooh. Yeah, deep I, breath. I mean, the thing is that, that eventually he developed into a stylist who could carry the energy of the music or whatever else he was writing about into his writing. I mean, mm. one of my favourite things of his is his fabulous biography of the great, well, not so great, boxer Sonny Liston, Night Train, which yeah. is just a monstrously brilliant piece of writing. Yeah. And he puts you into the guy's skin in a curious kind of way. I mean, uh, his writing about Jerry Lee Lewis, he was possibly the major writer about Jerry Lee Lewis, mm. has the energy of Jerry Lee Lewis in, in the pages. Well, they're like Probably. novels, aren't they? Yeah. The Liston book and the Jerry Lee yeah. book. Yeah. They're written in a kind of quasi fictional style yeah. that's so captivating yeah. it's it's very different from conventional biography absolutely and it's remarkable when a writer can put you in a situation like that and yeah. kind of give you sensations just through words uh, I, I, that I, I, are like listening to music or I think like that's right. watching sport or the, whatever it might yeah, be the writing contains the energy that absolutely. the music is so, i mean the other thing is amazing course, he was one of the first people to seriously write about the sort of pre-rock and roll, the progenitors of rock and roll. Mm. He had a, the, the unsung heroes of rock, rock and roll, which and roll, became yeah. a book. Yeah. Started off as a column in Cream, where he wrote about the likes of one only Harris. And whilst they're sort of, they are more strict biographical, they list the records he made. And all, it's still got that extraordinary quality. He sort of pulls, brings these people to life. For a readership who probably knew nothing about this, yeah. who thought that rock and roll started with Elvis Presley. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Um, yes. Well, and in fact, the last of the pieces by Nick pretty much says that rock and roll was already dead before Elvis <laughs> appeared. Uh, I'll just. There's <laughs> a great rant for Spin Hot take. in August 1990 called Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, ironically. And he just says, I mean, let's get it straight. Rock and roll is dead, deader than the 80s. Deader than Liberace, deader than the papal penis, dead. <laughs> Bill White, Bill Haley, the first white rock and roll star, came, turned to shit, and went all in one fell swoop. <laughs> By the summer of 1954, in other words, the cycle was already complete. The beast of rock and roll had been tamed for the circus of the masses. By the time Elvis, another dead fuck, came along. <laughs> Wow! <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, the thing is, because via my fandom of that band Rugalate and going backstage, what's this song you're playing? All she wants to do is rock. And I said, why not Harris? Mm. And the next week in Brick Lane Market, I found the King Cutout album of one only Harris and just fell in love with all of that yeah. sort of mm. stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, his, that claim that was already dead before Elvis came on, slightly undermined by the fact that he wrote this incredible book about Jerry Lewis. Yeah, yeah. You know, with it. So so there's just fantastic stories yeah. in that book about a very, very drunken Jerry Lee coming to the gates of Graceland in the middle of the night and demanding that Elvis get out of yeah, bed. Yeah, yeah, famous, famous. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I mean, in a way, he was a controversialist. What you've just read is him actually trying to wind up his readership yeah. with a chunk of truth in it. Yeah, you know, sure. it, 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 But great writer. Great yeah. Writer. I only met him the one time, took him out on the RBP dime <laughs> in, in, in New York where he lived nearly all his life. 
he was he he was a, a very entertaining, was he funny convivial in person guy. As well? He was very very funny. I mean, I think Nick could be pretty cantankerous, like a lot of those guys, like Meltzer and others of that generation. The Unholy Trinity dubbed the Noise Boys by James Walcott, uh-huh. Lester Bangs, most famously Richard Meltzer, the most extreme of those yeah, writers. Yeah. And Tosh is the one who probably turned into, who sort of outstripped rock culture. Yes, absolutely. And became, well, a best-selling, yeah. a best-selling yeah. author. I mean, his Dean Martin biography was a best-seller. Absolutely. You know, Sonny Liston, yeah. I think, you, sold pretty you, well. You, you say that he could be a cantankerous, but one thing that was really noticeable when he died that a lot of our American music journalist friends on Facebook were saying how in person, how lovely he was. I mean, mm. no one expressed any sort of reservations. They said yeah. there's about three or four people who had some dealings with him, and they just said, actually, in person, he's much less frightening in person than he was in print. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's right. He, he was charming. He had a, he had a fabulous smile and, you know, was really a warm yeah. guy, as, as I recall from that yeah. one encounter. Yeah. But then he could be capable of sort of rolling out of bed the wrong side. I'm sure. And sort of... Demanding all his stuff taken off Rock's back pages, <laughs> till, he did till he was reminded that actually he had signed a contract <laughs> with us. Um, but I mean, look, Tom Waits said that Tosha's writes like music sounds, yeah. and that was a huge tribute. I remember telling Nick yeah. that, and uh, well, Chuck and Wepner, he was, he was the yeah. boxer in the jacket of the Sunday Listen book says. Nick Tosh's writes like Liston punches. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the same thing. High praise in both counts. Yeah. Anyway, there's tons of Tosh's out there in print. There's there's the Nick Tosh's reader that DeCapo published is... Is, is a, a fantastic introduction. But Hellfire, I think, was voted the, the best music book of all time in The Observer. Is that right? Yeah. So mm. go forth and read Nick Tosh's, yeah. and we will miss him, and many people will miss him. Hold back the dawn. Stop all the clocks. I just got the news that my baby wants to rock. All she wants to do is rock. Also free on the homepage this week, we are featuring two long pieces about Motorhead. This, this is so essentially this week sees the release of the two albums that they released in the year 1979 Overkill and Bomber. Yeah. The two the albums two that really solid albums. Oh, brilliant. So, mm. Solid solid metal albums that really yeah. cemented their reputation. The classic Motorhead lineup was Filthy Animal Taylor and Fast Eddie Clark. Fast Eddie Clark, yeah. you know, the best iteration of that band. Yes. Absolutely. So we've got a piece by Giovanni Dodomo from Sounds, March 79, when Overkill has just come out. And then a Chris Salovich piece from NME later that year, August, when Bomber is about to come out. Mm -hmm. And both these pieces on revisiting them reminded me of what was special about Motorhead. There's a great thing in Dadamo's piece as for all the carnivores, laser-assisted midgets and Mickey Mouse-faced blood-spitting clowns in silly shoes that make up the US of A's alternatives to heavy metal. Fui! P-F-U-I! Exclamation mark. <laughs> uh, make mine motorhead, landlord. Overkill will delight the converted and swell their ranks enormously. Mark, tell us about... Because you saw... Motorhead very early. Yeah, my regret is I never saw this iteration. This, of the this line, that was um, probably the best. I think I've line. already told, said, recounted this on a podcast before, but I, I saw him supporting Bloister Carlton in 75 at Hammersmith. Yeah. This is a Larry Wallace iteration of the yes. band. 
And I mean, they were appalling. You know, <laughs> the, uh, Larry tried to tune his guitar up with his fuzz mm. box on, which you just cannot no. do. And the whole audience were going up, up, down, down. But I remember them far more clearly than I remember Blue Oyster Cult, who bored me. And there was even then there was a sort of mad energy to what they did. I'd seen Lemmy before. I'd seen him with Hawkwind a couple, uh, not more than a couple of times. They yeah. played a lot of free concerts, and yeah. I also rode it for their support band at the Edmonton Sundown, and that was a runtime of Silver Machine. And Lemmy was kind of in Hawkwind, but not really of them. There was always something distinctly different. He had previously eroded for Hendrix and so on and so forth. The guy had a really kind of interesting hinterland as a kind of northern British rock and roller. But Motorhead, that gig I saw, they almost fell to pieces after that. They were having a real struggle. And so you're talking about four years, and he gets these two new guys in, young guys, much younger than him, while the first band, certainly Larry Wallace, was kind of the same rock and roll generation. And they just they just took off. They were just, I think, fabulous. I mean, Lemmy's voice is an unlovely yes. thing. <laughs> yes. But who but cares? It suits, it suits the context. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah. It's, it's, all, it's all about that energy and yeah. all about that and, and And those two other guys, Taylor and, and Fast Eddie, were just really good players. They were really good yeah. players. Yeah. I mean, listening to Overkill again, it, it was almost like I, I found myself thinking, this is like a sort of punk ZZ top. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a fantastic track, Limb from Limb, the last track, I think, on Overkill, mm-hmm. which is a terrific riff. <laughs> I mean, it's worth remembering that they did bring something of the sort of raw savagery of punk Very to metal. So. You Very know, much the, so. It, metal had turned into a bloaty yeah, joke yeah, yeah. by then, and Motorhead were, had much more in common. Yeah. Also, they had these connections with, like, Stiff and Chiswick, oh, oh, and t- they were right in the midst of that whole London punk thing. No, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, you've got to also remember, those two albums came out around exactly the same time as the new wave of British heavy Exactly, metal. yeah. They were never really past... No, away from no. British heavy metal. They were a different beast altogether. As you say, closer to punk in many respects. This extraordinary energy. I mean, I, I, yeah. I really I'm like the, the Domo piece, actually. Yeah. It's quite funny. It paints a picture of them as, you know, your archetypal hard rockers that, yeah. you know, talking about sex, drugs and rock and roll. There's a very funny bit where the Domo goes, Lemmy, I tell Lemmy, trying to make words to fit the feel. Lemmy, there's a hell of a lot of people out there who respect you, man. Lemmy laughs. Respect, says Lemmy. I don't think it's so much respect as awe. Most of them are just fucking amazed that I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, when you read Salvage's piece, this is a fantastic story that Lemmy tells about being in Hawkwind playing a roundhouse. I mean, notorious speed freak. Lemmy, yeah. You know, absolutely right. How he was still alive at this point, God knows. But he, talk, he talks about him and Dick Mick of Hawkwind. We'd had about a gram of amphetamine sulfate each, 10 black bombers each. Somebody gave us a tab of acid each. We ate them, and then somebody gave us two more. And we ate them as well and then somebody gave us some cocaine and somebody gave us a mandrax this was they're about to go on stage <laughs> <laughs> it's like we were both like stiff as boards it was just like they had to wedge our legs onto the back of the stage and push oh, us upwards <laughs> and Lemmy says I'm going where's the crowd and Doug our manager says that way <laughs> I mean yeah, I mean, speed is central to the story yeah, of Motorhead. Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. they played really fast. There yeah, was yeah. a huge amount of kind of finesse. It was a lot of power. Well, I mean, going back to the first iteration of the band that I saw, the drummer, Lucas Cox, as mm. his real name, but rechristened Lucas Fox, Fox to be a bit more rock and roll, 
He attempted to keep up with Lemon's speed consumption and was out of the band within months. He just couldn't do it. Yeah, Jesus. You know, yeah, uh, uh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I did a lot of speed in those days. Mm. Sulfate was the poor man's cocaine. Yeah, you know, it was five pound a gram, and that would keep you flying yeah. for a long time. Yeah, but you know, if I just got sick of it. it yeah. you know, I mean, it's not you know how he sustained. I know. What, about four decades of doing speed uh, or I, more. I, I, you know, I, I mean, just he probably would have lived to about one hundred and twenty. <laughs> like about Lemmy is actually, you know, people have an idea of Lemmy as, the, as a sort of cartoon heavy rocker, but actually he was a bright guy, oh, yeah, he was quite he well stupid. read, yeah. and didn't, I mean, and sort of knew that there sort was something absurd about yeah, all this. I mean, yeah, he talks yeah. in the Salovich piece about this idiot rock musician lifestyle, and Salovich talks about meeting him in the squash in Feb 77, and he's reading P.G. Woodhouse, <laughs> um, along with all these books about the Third Rock. Right, yeah, yeah. And there's quite a nice bit where Salovich talks about asking about the National Front. Lemmy says, never underestimate the power of bigotry. Yeah, yeah. Which is a, a nice thing to read all this yeah. time later. I mean, yes, he did have, like, iron crosses and things. Yeah. He sort of flirted with that imagery, but he was never no, condoning he it no, in no, any way. No. And lastly, in this context, we didn't really mark the passing of the aforementioned Larry yeah. Wallace. There's a piece from July 2002 by Dave Thompson um, uh, about Larry, interview with Larry, and a fascinating guy, yeah, Larry yeah. No, I, mean, I, I saw him a lot. I saw him a lot with the Pink Fairies. As I said, I saw him with Motorhead. If you get a moment, go on YouTube and look for... Pink Fairies, maybe Pink mm. Fairies, Larry Wallace. There's some live stuff. I think there's a French TV show. And he was a wild guitar player. He yes. was a fabulously wild guitar player. Yes. You know, not like a metal player at all. Very psychedelic in many ways, but very Hendrixy in certain respects. But, you know, he he's a man with a Stratocaster who could just take that instrument all kinds of places. Mm. The last time we saw him, oddly enough, in a much more subdued version... Is this the Royal Way? No, or am I included? Yes, no, it's you and I. Mick Farron's book launch. Right. In that pub up in Islington. Yeah. And his duo played, and Larry was the guitar player with that. A very subdued version of Larry. You yeah. Know? But, yeah, no, I mean, I always... Like, with the Pink, I saw yeah. the Pink Fairies a whole lot of times, because, again, they used to play free concerts under the West mm. Way or in Meanwhile Gardens and so on, all yeah. around where I kind of currently live. Yeah. And the Fairies were Mick Farron's old band, of Deviants, sort of reworked. And they were a great rock and roll band. Yeah. You know, they really were. You yeah. know, their records never really stacked up to much, but live, they could really sort of do it. And so, yeah, Larry was a kind of wonderful guy. And again, he got involved, he's very involved in stiff records. He even had a sort of punk hit. Yeah, Police Cup. That's right. Yeah. Um, Great record. Which, but totally unlike Larry Wallace, you know. Well, um, so Motorhead was really only a very small part of the Larry Wallace story, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, yeah. then he, he also, he actually produced Gary Gilmore's Eyes by the Adverts. Did he? The great, wow. great punk singer. One of the great punk Because singles. Jake Riviera literally offered him a gig as sort of being the house producer yeah. on Stiff. Yeah. And their first thing was, then they went to Anchor Records yeah. and he produced Gary Gil Gilmore's eyes, which was one of the big early punk hits. Absolutely. So, you know, he had his kind of fingers in all sorts yeah. of pies. He's also got a really nice turn of phrase in this short interview that Thompson did when he, he talks about uh, being asked to join Motorhead. And he says, it was 
This is 75. It was just as if the serendipity fairy had arrived. Lemmy had been imprisoned in Hawkwind and was now flexing his leathern wings. <laughs> it just had to be. I love it. Well, unfortunately, it didn't. It, 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 it had to be, but it wasn't. Yeah, really. that version. And, that and, version. And, and Wallace left. Well, I mean, he was gone by. 76, yeah, really, yeah. wasn't I mean, you know, Larry was fond of his drugs, too. I Actually, I very briefly met him because he was an old pal of Martin Stone, Chili Willinder and Red Hot Peppers guitar yeah. player, who was briefly in the Pink Fairies with Larry. There was a, one iteration. Of, and he came round to the house once and kind of I basically said hello. But he took a lot of drugs. He drank a lot, probably. You know, mm. that generation of musicians... Just did. Just did. <laughs> Fundamentally. Just what well, so, did. so we're saying goodbye not yeah. only to Nick Toshis, but a sort of belated farewell to Larry yeah. Wallace. And that concludes the sort of free offerings portion of the show. And we are now going to talk about our rather fabulous audio interview for this week, aren't we, Mark? Yeah, this is fantastic. Goody. This is Snoop Doggy Dog. He was still Doggy Dog back then. Interviewed on 22nd December 1993, which was almost exactly a month after Doggy Style had come out. Yeah. Doggy Style had gone straight to number one in the Billboard Incredible. Top 100. It was the first time that ever happened. Yeah, well, I don't a know. A new artist is that... with his first album yeah. going straight yeah. to number one on the Billboard chart. So, show. The, there's this guy. He's was already something of a star because of his work on The Chronic with yeah. Dre, but suddenly he was a megastar. Yeah. What's not talked about in this interview is he had this murder charge hanging over him. It's sort of talked around because what he talks about, he talks quite great length about his youth, about you know, growing up in Compton in kind of some poverty. And, in fact, we shall we listen to that? that, <laughs> that a brilliant idea. That Let's about? actually hear Snoop now, now, A word of warning, the sound quality is not great. This is recording the micro cassette, so it's not gorgeous, but it's really worth it. With so much drama in the LBC, it's kind of hard being Snoop D-O-double G, but I somehow, some way, keep coming up with funky ass shit like every single day. Can you talk a little bit about life as a teenager? What, what sort of temptations and problems came around? There wasn't no money at the house. My mama was, was a single parent with me and my two brothers working a job that wasn't paying much. And I was tired of seeing her struggle, so I got misled and saw that easy money and tried to make it. Ended up going to jail and being on probation and, you know, dealing with that the way I dealt with it. I mean, it was just tired of seeing my family struggle like And I felt there was a thing to do since I couldn't get a good job that was paying that wouldn't interfere with me going to school and, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was temptation and I took it. But I'm blessed enough to live through it and see it, so I mean, now it's all. I mean, he, you know, he, his mother was a major, major figure for him. He is challenged about his use of misogynistic language about women in the interview. And he does this. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I don't buy it. But the classic hip-hop thing, oh, it's those women. It's the ones who come up to you after the show who kind of want to have sex with you. They're the bitches. They're the hoes. But actually, you know, everyone, all the other women are fabulous. I don't, I don't buy yeah, it's, that. It's not a... It's, you know, you know, it doesn't quite stack up. But, but he does come over... 
he talks quite extensively about the nature of black society, about kind of people having kids way too young. He's no very fathers. reflective on all of that. He really and is. quite Thoughtful. incisive about he, yeah, how, he, yeah. how he talks about it. And he's very young at this point. He's very young, but he's I mean... Like just about he, to turn 23. He, yes. know, he, and he talks very interestingly about sort of his probation officer who basically kind of gave him a free pass on a few kind of offences he committed well. In, and he talks about the difference between it's one thing being put in the county jail for a few days, it's something else altogether being sent to the penitentiary. And he talks about being uplifted by fellow prisoners at the county jail who are telling him, you know, you're too good at rapping to be stuck in prison. And and he talks about how that really built him up to make something of himself. And I mean, make something of himself he certainly has. Um, Later on, we're going to play a clip where he talks about how Al Green was one of the major voices he heard in his youth. to hear. Uh, and actually very relevant, because in a curious kind of way, he is a sort of hip-hop Al Green. Mm. He's got that, that same sort of extraordinarily relaxed delivery. that Languid. The, the language. Yes. Well, isn't it late? But in relation to that, here's a very short, short clip. Him talking about how is a conversational... Oh, conversating. Conversating. We're not conversating. Yeah. As a conversational rapper. Going up for this, going up for that. With the lizard king bumping in the back. How about that? Drifting, lifting, swifting, coasting, testing, roasting. But the wheels won't stop. So more on the artistic side, you were saying that um, you don't want to be hollering when you're rapping. No. You're going to be like... I'd rather be laid back conversating because a conversation is deeper than somebody trying to, you know, really get into it. Mm-hmm. Because a conversation is more understandable. It's more direct. It makes you stop and say, you my melody. Now let me hear what I sound like acapella. Roll, ride, dip, sweat. Now bring it back. It's just like this. Like a dog. And right there and then is why, for me, I'd say Snoop is sonically my favourite yeah. rapper. He's one of, I mean, his voice really is unique and yeah. it is special because it's so laid back and it's so cool. Absolutely. And it just has a great texture to yeah. it as well, a sort of slight gritty graveliness. Yeah, yeah. The way he uses language as well is very and, funny. And there's just something really sweet about him, and that comes through in this interview, you know. Yeah, um, this is a gentleness, isn't yeah. it? I mean, I remember when he broke through and just thinking, well, this is something very different. Yeah. And there really hadn't been any, anybody like him before. He's just, his, I mean, he's six foot four, this Bean pole from yeah, Long yeah. Beach. His mother came from. You can hear the sort of sullen sort of lilt in yeah, the voice yeah. there. Mother from Mississippi, and just the delivery was so unique. It was so laid back. It was like the hip hop yeah. equivalent point, of like Al Green. Absolutely, because well, at that point it was Chuck D with Public Enemy. It was Ice Cube. These yeah, much were, more in your face. Much more in your yeah. face. Very aggressive. Very yeah. tough. And then suddenly this guy comes along, and it's all, you know, rolling down a road, smoking endo, mm. sipping on gin and juice, which is, of course, an entirely autobiographical, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You were saying yesterday, didn't he smoke something like 80 bombs oh, a day? Just, well, that's just, just anyway, ridiculous. I mean, I mean uh, he, he did briefly try and give up, apparently, in the 2000s. Uh-huh. And that lasted that, about six I'm sure months. that worked. I mean, <laughs> he, it's very funny. In more recent years, I think he visited some prize-winning British farmer to, who'd grown like the largest chard or something like that to get growing tips for his. I mean, it's not mentioned any of the TV coverage what it's for, but it's extremely obvious. And in know. fact, he invites the farmer to smoke with him, although the coverage won't mention what they're smoking, it's quite clear. And the farmer afterwards is very sort of like, Snoop's a really nice guy. And it's funny because I think Snoop has gone from being, you know, a gangster, you know, with a murder charge mm-hmm. hanging over him 
to almost like a sort of national treasure status. Everybody loves Snoop. He yeah, hangs out right. with the most unlikely people. Yeah. He does a segment that I showed you guys earlier, Planet Earth with Snoop Dogg, where he narrates <laughs> nature documentaries, which is, is hilarious. Is Snoop Dogg as David Attenborough. Yeah. yeah, Snoop Dogg as David Attenborough. <laughs> Brilliant. And, and it's really very He's funny. about to start a tour next week, yeah. the US tour. He'll be, he'll be coming to the UK in, in April. I mean, the fact that he's still alive mm. is, is quite remarkable, given the number of people who died in yeah. And on that scene as well. Yeah. He talks in this interview about how he expects to have a short career. He says that, you know, in the hip-hop game, people come and they go, mm. hurry, you know. Mm. He, at this point, when he's being interviewed, mm. probably can't see foresee a career lasting more than another A career that also mm. spans reggae. He had that brief period <laughs> as Snoop Lion. That's right. Snoop Lion. That was actually utterly ridiculous. Yeah, it was absurd. Smoke the weed every day. Don't smoke the seeds. No way. Smoke the weed. Hey, smoke the weed. Younger generation. The other thing, you know, that his, his things with women is worth mentioning that he married his childhood sweetheart. They divorced in 2004, at which point he took up pimping. That lasted like 18 months before all the other pimps said, look, you're really not cut out for this game, Snoop. And then he remarried his childhood sweetheart. Mm. He's got one other child outside of that marriage, but otherwise all his children and now his grandchildren are the product of that marriage. You know, that's pretty rare, full stop, you know. Mm. Um, so that, that, that's pretty good going. I thought anyway, I'd go and read I, the... I thought I'd read the, the resulting piece from this. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's done... The interview is done by Stephen Daly, former drummer with Orange Juice, who reinvents himself as a really great music writer in writer. New York in the early 90s. The piece was published February 1994 in The Face. It's, it's a really, really good piece. Obviously, he talks about the murder charges. He couldn't ask snoop about in the interview but he uses this phrase he talks about a tranced out sway and a heavy lidded stare that marked snoop as the most magnetic figure in rap and i think that's pretty kind of accurate yeah. there was something really hypnotic about an... his mode of of rapping and there's another really interesting thing about that rapping he talks in the interview as well about the way that he a lot of his rap kind of comes from freestyling how he would show up to rap battles and, and basically win because he could make what he was saying relevant to what was going on whereas other people yeah. came with pre-prepared lines yeah, yeah. and there are some really fantastic yeah. Snoop freestyles on YouTube that, Is that you can right? listen to that are just okay. you know just him riffing on whatever and he's he's really funny as well as his lyricist he's funny <laughs> yeah. and he's inventive with language I mean the whole you know Plizanet the whole Izzle Shizzle whatever yeah. like it's it's all he's just witty with yeah. it and I he's yeah. one of my favourite rappers yeah. Talk to him, Snoop. Wake your ass up, it's sway in the morning. I brush my teeth and now I'm yawning. I jumped in the Sprinter van heading down the streets trying to get to the radio station to get complete. Yes. Mm. I stopped to get me something to eat at the store. I stopped to talk to a cute little hoe. <laughs> she say, Snoop Dogg, can I go? I said, nut, 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 no. <laughs> so we'll hear one last clip at the end of this episode yeah but mark is now going to lead us through some other things that are what's here hot for subscribers what's, what's hot? hot for subscribers drop it like it's hot starting in melody maker 66 this is interesting max jones interviewing rick led bass player rick led who went on to be part of the first version of the mahavishnu orchestra quite a few years after this rick led had been the house bass player at ronnie scott's club i guess with stan tracy playing piano and so on and so forth be around that time right and he's asked, he's about to leave, he's about to leave England, go to Berkeley College in America to kind of to study and so on and so forth. And he's asked, you know, who 
of all the people you backed at Ronnie's was interesting. He said Sonny Rollins. And he said Sonny was especially interesting and that we would never know what he was going to play or what key he was in or anything. Mm. And he's not saying that in a critical way. He's saying no. it's just, it was really interesting. And he has, his respect for Sonny Rollins is absolutely huge. And the other guy he singles out is Ben Webster. I think it's very mm. interesting that he liked yeah. playing with those, those, those two. Those two. I think it's time for our Mendo moment. Mendo moment! <laughs> This is John Mendelssohn review West Bruce and Lang at the Hollywood Palladium in 1972. Friday evening at the Hollywood Palladium, West Bruce and Lang and a new supergroup comprising the remnants of Mountain and Cream did for 1968 approximately what Sean and I made a career of doing for the late 50s. So nostalgic as they were, though, dwarfed by massive amplifier stacks and boisterously soliciting ovations for one another's virtuosity at the conclusion of every song, their music was insufferable tedium. <laughs> Ouch, there we go. Yeah, so there Cutting we are. That's, once that's, again. That's our classic Mendo, Mendo, oh, Mendo moment. How many supergroups, you know, are They're essentially all, all, it's all, all insufferably tedious? Yeah, I, really all. I saw Mountain. Especially the power trip. I, I saw Mountain at the Rainbow. Yeah, well, I, I, rather, I hate to say that. Surprised you didn't see West Bruce and Lang. I, I, I rather enjoyed Mountain. Mississippi Queen. Um, Big fat Leslie West. Moving on, a year later, disc 1973, the marvellously named Rosalind Russell, not the Rosalind Russell, interviewing Sweet's Brian Connolly. And she's fairly sharp about him. She first of all describes him as looking not half as beautiful as he looks on top of the pots, but somewhat haggard and so on and so forth. And he's ghastly. You know, he really, he, he takes himself far too seriously. He says... He says, I think the dressing up is necessary because the kids are into glam rock. We'll move with the times with new clothes. Well, that worked well. Glam rock is the most happening thing in America. I think the image helped a lot there. It didn't. Mm. Glam rock really didn't happen in America. It didn't really, uh, didn't really pick didn't, up. Didn't. And it wasn't known as glam rock That's either. Right. What was it was it called glitter rock. Glitter rock. Yeah, so glam didn't really have any resonance yes. in but American the, pop culture. The, this is it's a really good piece because Rosalind Russell is really sharp. She's clearly got a certain degree of content. I didn't know that Brian subject. Connolly was supposed to be beautiful, I have to confess. Well, you know, I mean, sweet were never really beautiful, were they? They weren't lovely. Um, though I remember that when we went to see The White Stripes, suddenly realising that... that What's his name from the White Stripes? Jack White. Had based his entire vocal vocal style on the bass player from Sweet. (laughs) What to do? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. We were probably an unconscious influence if it was (laughs) at all. We just haven't got a clue what to do. Does anyone know the way? There's got to be a way. Next piece is just fantastic. This is from January 1975, Village Voice. The marvellous Glenn O'Brien. I think Barney and I both agree. One the of late, our, another one we've lost. Yeah, one of our favourite writers. It's about the closure of Max's Kansas City. He says, On the last Wednesday of Advent, towards midnight, I had the urge and did taxi down to Max's Kansas City for a nightcap with a lady friend who happens to write a column of witticism and miscellany in an underground magazine for the wealthy. Arriving at a portal, which one invariably felt had been entered once too often, we were nevertheless greatly disappointed, almost heartsick, to find the premises dark, the glass doors latched, and an ignominious clothes sign scrawled on a torn scrap of cardboard, the only explanation. Mm. So, Max's Kansas City closed. And he then goes into what the Max's Kansas City meant and so on and so forth. 
He says, Max's heroically mixed quality had, after all, led to such meetings as Alice Cooper and Lou Reed, Candy Darling and Divine, Andy Warhol and Valerie Solanas, <laughs> Sergeant Shriver and Jackie Curtis, meetings which might not have a settings today. And although one could not immediately recall any of the great things that had been said there, one was nevertheless confident that they had been said, even though in the annals of memory the great knights had all merged into one vague recollection. One knew that there had been knights of greatness. Yes, when it was bad, it was very, very bad. But when it was good, it was fabulous. Mm. And, it, you know, he's making this argument that Max's should have been preserved by New York State as a home of the arts. It's a, it's a wonderful, quite catty, quite camp piece of writing, which was Dan O'Brien's special. I mean, of course, Max's did reopen at the very end of that year right. and became quite an important punk club. Right. A lot of the New York punk bands... Yeah. And even some of the British punk bands played there. I think it finally closed probably around 81, did something you ever like that. It? I did. Yeah. Yes, I did. How did you find it? Did you meet Valerie Solanas there? No. <laughs> scum, scum, scum. Or Candy, darling. It was, yeah, I steered clear of any woman who was intending to cut up men. Yeah. He, so he even in those yeah. days. He, also, he mentions in this piece that, Very forward that, 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 that the ladies' room would be full of camp boys and, you know... <laughs> Max's was the great place where all the New York scenesters, and yeah, Glenn yeah, was one of the yeah. great New York yeah. scenesters, came together. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, was, it was always like there would be someone like Lou Reed sitting in the back booth. Glenn and... was a major part of Andy Wall's interview magazine, wasn't he? That was, that was one of Absolutely. his major parts. Absolutely. I mean, he, he was a key Warhol, yeah. Warhol acolyte. Moving forward to 83, Cream magazine, <laughs> Anine Kay interviewing Duran Duran's John Taylor. Who I've heard subsequently, lots of people say actually he's actually a really nice yeah. man. He comes over as an absolute twat in this yeah. piece. Um, yeah. We've realised that we are pop stars, so whatever we say is the right thing for pop stars to say. Oh, beautiful. What a lovely uh, bit of recursion. Uh, and later on, I can't stand politics personally. I think it's incredibly boring. I'd rather write songs about parties. All I know is that at least with Margaret Thatcher, we pay less tax. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Hey, it's the 80s. <laughs> it's the 80s. I'm so glad to see another Anine piece in there. She was a dear friend of mine. Yeah. I mean, oh, he's still a dear yeah. friend of mine, except she lives in the back of beyond, in sort of North Carolina or somewhere. <laughs> haven't seen her for a while, but one of the funniest people yeah, I've it's ever it's met it's in my life. And had this kind of brief life writing for Cream and writing for other American yeah. rock mates. Always very, very funny. Yeah, I, I mean, I, this is mainly John Taylor it's, talking. It's all, yeah, but... but there's a very funny little no, intro. She, yeah. And also she, she managed to arrange what he says in a very kind of funny sort of way. Going on to another live review from Los Angeles Times, this time Van Halen at the Forum. And I think Richard Cromeland gets kind of what's great about David Lee Roth as a performer. I mean, none of us particularly love Van Halen. I do. Well, the first couple of albums mm. are really good. They, they, they became pretty tedious in a hurry. But David Lee Roth, I think we all kind of rather love, don't we? Oh, I mean, course. we love reading interviews. One of the smartest yeah. and funniest rock stars of all time. And I think he catches what this guy's like live here really well. He says, on stage, Roth turns the difficult trick of combining intimacy with huge scale. The sounds, the close encounters, lighting consoles, and a stage full of two-storey speakers and high-tech scaffolding inflate that scale. Then Roth bounds out in his shredded pants and effortlessly connects with the back rows, turning the arena into a big rec room. He's larger than life, but at the same time so down-to-earth you have no trouble picturing him hanging out in the mall with you and your buddies.
91. Cher being interviewed by Mull Peachy and Vox. I love Cher. Mm. It's got to be said. I think she she takes herself seriously enough to work really hard and do good stuff, but she doesn't take herself that seriously. She's been playing in London this week as well. So yes, that's right. O2, rave reviews. And she talks about you know the early days. She says, in those days, it wasn't my place to choose songs. Snuff Garrett would find them and he and Sonny would decide how to do them. I'd sing them, you know. Just that. She's also, she's got a reputation that's been difficult. She says, I don't mind a good argument. I don't go looking for them, but I certainly don't shy away from them. I don't think art is a place to be nice. Fair which play. Is, which is yeah, a, yeah, that's a fair point. A, a fair, and I was cheered to see that she was referring to the US president as an asshole. That's the, the O2 last week or earlier this week. So she's she's she still tells it like she yeah. sees it. I, I always thought she was a remarkably good actress. I don't mm. think she's actually kind of... I mean, I'm Silkwood, I thought she was fantastic in Mask. She was absolutely fantastic in... Mm. You Very rapidly, you're not watching Cher anymore. You're watching... You know, it's a good sign if an actor's not exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Moving on, the next year, 1992, Danny Baker apparently was the last person to interview, the last journalist to get to interview Michael Jackson before he more or less stopped being interviewed at all. I believe he did do some television interviews later in his life, but mm-hmm. so he goes to review him at Wembley Stadium, and he the, the piece involves a sort of him pretending to interview Michael backstage and so on. And he just puts this in at the end. He says, this is a dread confession to write, but I think Michael Jackson will not grow old. Like Monroe or Elvis, there's a tragedy waiting to be played out here. You just watch. I mean, it's 1992. Mm. That's uh, quite know. an early... Yeah. But I mean, well, I guess... He was already demented yeah. by 1992. He, he was, but... not such an extraordinary But you weren't uh, expecting him expect mm. to die. Mm. No. Last thing I'm going to really talk about is... Really brilliant little piece from ID by Susan Corrigan. She's an American woman journalist. This is from October '95, and who had fallen in love with the sort of punk Manchester at great remove, buying the NME from the local store and all the Buzzcocks, all of that sort of stuff. Then she had got into the Smiths. Hadn't got Stone Roses and Happy Mondays at all, but then for the first time. She's invited by a friend to come over to Manchester. And she says, The groups I once slagged off now rule the city, none more so than Happy Mondays and Stone Roses. My friends were going to Blackpool to see the roses. Did I fancy it? Dry opened in Oldham Street, so we went to get pissed and discovered Sean Ryder got there first. 808 State were a resident in some black hole near the bus station. And Hacienda, the snotty fashion victims who had gone, replaced by thousands of smiling, gurning kids who were happy dancing to Voodoo Ray as well as I Am the Resurrection. Mm. Sitting in a car around the corner from a Rush Home curry house, my friend and I shared a fat spliff and decided we were in heaven. Convert. Then she talks about how that scene went, the next time she went back, the place was desert. But this is written in the context of the rise of Oasis and a sort of a, yet another surge of sort of Manchester <laughs> mm-hmm. energy. So that's great. That's my that's stuff. A, it's a, a really great good scene piece. piece. Lovely. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. We'll look at the last sort of 20 years or so. <clears throat> Times I know nothing of. <laughs> yeah. Should I start in 2000? Yeah. With a little, slightly unusual, not what we usually have. I mean, we've got three other Terry Riley pieces, but this is our fourth Terry Riley, classic minimalist mm-hmm. master composer. But I thought it was interesting because it also mentions Chet Baker, because this album that was released, The Gift, around this time, that Edwin Pounce is reviewing for The Wire, 
he thinks the highlight is the collaboration between Riley and Chet Baker. I mean, it's not from that time because Chet Baker, of course, was dead by that point, but mm. because it's a sort of archival release of some stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where that comes from. And he says, Here Baker's bluesy trumpet breaks are recycled through a series of loops using two tape recorders so that live performance and recorded sound reverberate against each other to create a trance-like echo effect. The technique Riley used here was basically simple, what emerges is complex, hypnotic, and wildly yeah, that sounds, psychedelic. That sounds really and it good. It sounds really interesting, I haven't listened to it, but yeah, I no. think that actually, the last sentence really captures minimalist composition yeah, a lot yeah. of the time. If it's done really well, it can be, it's very simple, but yeah. becomes complex through repetitions yeah, and through my, all of that. My brother bought Rainbow and Curved Air when I guess I was about 12 or 13 when I first heard Terry Riley, therefore. I didn't, mm. And I didn't know what the context was, anything. It was this record my brother put on, and it was sort of, it would go round and round and round. And was kind of beautiful, you know. I uh, had a very nice cover. It was part of, like, the hippie, your, your hippie's record collection was Rainbow and Curved Air. Very interesting guy, Terry Riley. It was great. We must listen to that. We must, we must. I'm a, I do, I'm a fan of minimalism. Moving on to 2002, something rather different. <laughs> One Senor Coconut. <laughs> this is Adam Sweeting, who, to my surprise, is rather a fan of Senor Coconut's version of a bunch of Kraftwerk songs in a sort of Latin Mexican style, which is so bizarre. Germanic pronunciation. (laughs) (laughs) So despite his name, his album title, and the fact that his introduction is in Spanish, Senor Coconut is a German called Uwe Schmidt who fronts a six-piece Danish backing band. And they've done these covers. El Baile Aleman, which is the name of the album, means the German dance. A perfectly logical title for Herr Coconut's Latin-tinged Kraftwerk tribute LP recorded in Chile. Only a maniac, you would think, would filter the Dusseldorf Wunderkinder through an array of South American dance beats, but it works staggeringly well, not least because of the ingeniously Kraftwerkian vocals. And it is very funny. I have actually listened to it, and it's a totally bizarre album. I imagine you hate it because it's really pretty stupid. I also find it slightly questionable that he sort of Hispanic faces for this album, and it's a little bit sort of well, I mean, for his whole for his whole shtick. But Hispanic it is, it, face. <laughs> but it is a it is a funny idea to do Kraftwerk as Latin stuff. And some of it works surprisingly well. Yeah, for how long? Because of, uh, not for very long, but right. because of the Kraftwerk's repetitive rhythms. Again, that when it's combined with the dance rhythms of of Latin music, it can be quite funny. So, Adam Sweeting's a fan. Gave it four out of five stars. Well, there you go. It's uniquely Jasper-esque, isn't it? Yeah, some I mean, of these acts, I think, I, I really doubt they exist until he makes Jasper them up. plays them. They just they're, they're music that created for Jasper <laughs> many years in advance. Lastly, for me, I've got a, an interview with Blick Bassi, who's a pretty great Cameroonian musician, and he lives and works in France, and this is an interview by Laura Barton with him in 2015. Cool. And it's a really nice interview, and he talks about all sorts of things going through, you know, the reason why he lives at this point. He lives in a small village of a 1,000 people near Calais because he felt he needed to get out of Paris because he was feeling sort of stagnant in yeah, that yeah. context. And he lives in a low house next door to the garlic cellar. And he, he's, he, he says, he is, he laughs, the only exotic character, quote, in a community where all they have in terms of knowledge of Africa is through the news on TV. And what is that? Ebola, presidential coups, nothing real, actually. But 
he's found that they've actually, when meeting him, have been super welcoming. He recounts the tale of being met by the police and being worried about, you know, getting stopped. But in fact, it was just, you know, wishing him a nice day kind of thing. Mm. So he, he's really enjoying that sense of local yeah. community that I think he probably missed when in Paris. It's interesting, Paris became, over the last 30 years, a centre of a lot of African pop. We tend to forget that Francophone Africa is actually the centre of most modern African music that we listen to, not Anglophone mm. Nigeria or yeah. South Africa, yes. but very much you know, Mali, mm. Cameroon, and so on and so forth. No, it's just, and just he, talks, he talks a lot about maintaining roots to Cameroon, because yeah. he, he really does still feel very strongly with that. Sure. But, you know, he's just very intelligent yeah. and very interesting. Also, Laura Barton's a terrific interview. Absolutely. Yeah. And his music's good, so yeah. that's, 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 I just thought it was a good, nice piece. What about you, Barney? Yeah. Got any jewels for us? Well, uh, do, do, do just three things I'll mention very briefly in passing. One is an interview with a fascinating writer, Glenn MacDonald. This is from the rockcritics.com mm-hmm. site, Stephen Ward, interviewing this extraordinary guy who, never, who refused to be paid for reviewing albums. It was just like a hobby. And his whole sort of mission was to declare war on rock criticism. <laughs> and he just just talks very interestingly in, in this interview about reviewing and about writing. So who did you write for? And he wrote for himself. He had his own website and that was it. But he became a bit of a cult figure. Ah. Um, I wonder if he managed to monetize that. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think he needed to. He had he had a sort of day job. Right. You know, he didn't give up the day job. But he's an, an interesting an interesting mind, definitely. Cool. There's a piece by the late Robert Sandel from 2009, which is all about pop superstars playing private parties ah. for sort of oligarchs and the like. Oh, yeah. and like and well, a little bit like the Baku gig that we J Lo in Baku. A little bit, exactly. But there's a, there's a mention of Philip Green's. Birthday party in the Caribbean. Who and plays, just, who, do you know, do I can't. I mean, know. there's numerous examples that Robert gives, but it is sort of shocking the amount. Yeah, yeah. That sort of. I think George Michael flies to Mustique, plays about 13 songs, and I think he's paid like two million dollars. Yeah, no. I mean, and this was this yeah. became quite a what, kind yeah. of it's, it's, it's regular it's, thing. It's, yeah, quite certainly yeah. lucrative. I mean, it's, it's two stories, one really, because it also tells us about. The emergence of the super rich, the global, yeah, the super, global rich super rich, who want yeah. to throw that um, kind of party, and who have that sort of money, absolutely, you know, yeah. in a way that they wouldn't have thirty mm-hmm. years before. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe one or two would have, but the idea that you're going to like Elton John, for start, example, he was on that circuit. He was playing people's private parties all over the place for vast amounts of money. It means he always just plays one show. And then he can sit on his ass for the next six months if he chooses to. Yeah, you know, so I mean, it, it, that well-paid is astonishing business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then just lastly, in 2011, Bob Dylan was 70. Michael Simmons rounded up a bunch of uh, Dylan collaborators um, to just talk about what it, what it's like working with mm-hmm. Bob. And that's that's people like Dan, Daniel Lanois. And they yeah, just yeah. all say very interesting things about uh, what a bizarre man he is yeah it's really long there's a lot of stuff in there there's writers mm. there's musicians there's producers there's engineers uh it's a real kind of fest shrift of yeah. tributes my, to my, my old friend Janie Roma had a relationship with Tony Garnier and I met him once and but who's he's, 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 he's been his bass player for 
ever now. He's been okay. on the road on this never-ending tour that Dylan's been doing since God knows. Mm. The 80s, I think, Garnier started with him. You know, it could well be as long ago as that. It might be. I think 90s probably. Well, definitely 90s, time, so definitely yeah. 90s, but yeah, possibly yeah, as early as it. Bass player and sort of MD, mm. you know, as yeah. musicians come and go. I mean, how do you sustain that life? I mean, Dylan, the thing is, Dylan doesn't like being at home. Mm. The road has home become is the road. Home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. I think that's brought us to the end of our roundup of library editions. Mark, we're going to go out with another yeah, clip. I, well, I particularly love this clip. He's kind of talking about growing up with Al Green on the, the hi-fi at home and sort of how he, what he's taken from that. And he's talk, he talks in this clip about how you know, he and Dre don't use samples. They don't sample. Every, mm-hmm. Just everything's played. They'll play the, the original tune, but they'll play it to sort of, like, bring it... They'll interpolate into, it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's just... It's, he, he talks about Al Green really real beautifully. It's yeah. real respect and love. So there we go. That's it from us. Thanks That's it from us. Number uh, 50. Yeah. We did it. Do you want to just say what about the giveaway again? Yeah, sure. Head on over to rocktrackpages.com forward slash giveaway and enter there by subscribing on iTunes, by subscribing on Spotify, following and all that stuff on all the social media, and that'll get you a bunch of entries to win. Basically, just love us. Love, love us. Yeah. Love us. By the way, I just know there's this horror that he's wearing a Jack Rocks Cola, Jack Daniels T-shirt. Yeah. I didn't want Coca-Cola to say Coca-Cola is the most disgusting thing you can do to Jack Daniels. I got this. I, got, your I think I probably got given this at a festival. That's where it came from. It's no excuse, no excuse, Jeff. You should know better. The fact that you've come direct from a foles gig in Oxford is no excuse. A foles gig. (laughs) I mean, that's the only thing I can put it down to, because normally... You drink Jack Daniels, I do, but not with bloody Coca-Cola in it. Sure, no. Um, This is for another episode. On a happy note, (laughs) I think we'll say goodbye. This is the end of the 50th episode of the Rock Fat Pages podcast. Thank you both for... Next week... Sorry, carry on. (laughs) I was going to say, next week, is Caroline Sullivan next week? Next week, Caroline Sullivan is due to join us. Who, We're really looking forward to really that. Looking For the 51st episode of the Rock Track Podcast. <laughs> and there'll be another giveaway with lots of other well, it things. Actually is running, it's running for a month. It's so running got, for a whole month. A, you've got a month. To... Until episode 54. I guess three. so. I can't do my maths. Something like that. Anyway. It's running until... Look, I just want to say, it's been... It's, it's, it's a year since we started yep. this and this madness. And it's been a lot of fun. And I hope it continues fun. to be a lot of fun. We hope to have lots more interesting guests yep. over the coming months and years. Years? Jesus, decades? We'll just, uh, uh, we'll just I, be no, here every Thursday uh, uh, just uh, uh, whittering on about no, rock and roll and de- related I'll be, genres. I'll be dead by then. You'll still, we'll, you'll still have to come in for the podcast. <laughs> Okay, on that note, that brings us up to the hour, Mark. We're going to say goodbye. We love you. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye-bye. Yeah, nigga. I'm still fucking with you. Still waters run deep. Still Snoop Dogg and D.I.A. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because Al Green, especially in England, means a lot to people. I mean, that was the music that my mama played. Al Green, I was just real young listening to Al Green and the dramatic thing. His voice was all I heard on the, on the music, so I mean, he touched me. The, the lyrics he wrote were real deep, and I mean, they were understandable at the age I was at. He was just reality at the time, and I mean, he was a big influence to me. I mean, it shows through my music. I even try to sing while I'm laughing. I mean, it's real deep. The way artists from yesteryear can have an impression on the artists of today, because a lot of people like to sample, but I don't like to sample. I'd rather redo your song, you know what I'm saying? 
to make it sound the same way you did. You know what I'm saying? The sample is just taking your work. Right. I'd rather redo it and, and make it clarified, clear like that. The quality, you know what I'm saying, of the work. And Al Green was a quality artist. That was Snoop Doggy Dog in conversation with Stephen Daly in 1993, concluding the 50th episode of the Rock's Back Pages podcast. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. For more information about our giveaway, running until November 22nd, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash giveaway. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.